Welcome back to QAV, the reboot episodes. Tony Kynaston, how are you? Very well, how are you? Very good, thank you, mate. You're safe? Yes, yes, very safe. Are you isolated? Isolated, yes. Uh, it's business as usual for me, really. I've been working from home for a long time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> me too. Sick coming yeah. up, what, 15, 16 years, I think, for both of us, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. We're, we're just can't go, out, can't go out to restaurants, but they can still right. home deliver, so we're still eating well, which is good. You don't go and have breakfast in your favourite little cafe every I morning to read the thing? No, and I'm reading the financial review online, which is hard, but I do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not hard, but I enjoy the, the paper version. So this is episode 303, uh, part two of our rebooted Getting Started with QAV uh, episodes. And if you're brand new, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I suggest you go back and listen to 301 first. What we're doing now is we're sort of re-recording the introduction to the whole series that we did early in 2019, just sort of... Uh, and not updating it really, but just trying to do a better job than we did in the early stages because, as we explained last week, we're just a little bit more fluent with uh, the subject matter in terms of how to explain it uh, on a podcast. So three, this episode, 303, is going to be picking up from where we left off in 301. 302 was a Q&A episode. People send us questions that we answer. Uh, so we're sort of alternating the getting started episodes with the question and answer episodes. So, I mean, you can listen to this one, that's fine, but I recommend you go back and listen to 301 first. And where we got up to in episode 301, I think we talked about the checklist and how you developed the checklist, where you came up with the idea from. You talked about the checklist manifesto book. We talked about the coffee shop analogy and how that sort of plays into explaining the checklist as we go through it, how that's a useful tool to... For me, it was a useful tool in terms of getting my head around the idea that we're not just dealing with abstractions here. We're actually buying shares of real businesses and thinking about it, thinking about them in terms of real businesses, like a like a coffee shop, something that I can grasp. And I thought where we would start today is to talk about the data services, where we get the data from as we're plugging it into the checklist, because there's a range of places that you can get the data from. It's all publicly available data. I guess the place where I started was getting the financial reports from the the stocks, the companies that we were looking at, but I found quite quickly that that was very slow and tedious. Yeah, it's... Um... And it can also be hard according to which reporting period we're looking at because uh, if we're looking at the half reporting period, then the numbers that are readily available in some of the sources might be full year. So you have to do some manipulations as well. Yeah, because we want to be looking at sort of 12 months in a lot of cases. So if it's a, right. if we've got the half, we have to take the half year figures and then we have to go back to the last full annual report and get the last half figures and add them all up and you can do it. Mm-hmm. And I actually found it useful to start there a year or so ago because it gave me a good understanding about uh, how much gump is in these annual reports and uh, how to get 
you said you just skip all the you skip the first 50 pages you just turn right to the back and get straight to the numbers and ignore the chairman's statement and the ceo's statement and all the fluffy stuff about oh it's going so great oh it's fantastic oh we're doing we're doing such a great job we're patting ourselves on the back and giving ourselves bonuses you're like yeah yeah let me see the numbers yeah exactly yeah Go past all the pictures of the, the CEO shaking hands in the community and what a great job he does and <laughs> having staff surrounding him and clapping him and all that. Because, yep. of course, today you'd be like, what are you doing? You should be elbow clapping. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Back to the data services. So apart from the company reporting, we've got, I guess, the data services fall into two categories in my mind, the freely available data services and the pay-per-use data services. Now, the ones that we tend to use on the show that we talk about are pay-to-play services, but there are some freely available services um, as well. So maybe we should do a quick review of the freely available and then we'll get into the pay-to-play. How about that? Sure. So the freely one, the free ones that I've used uh, over the last year include the ASX's website, Google Finance, Yahoo Finance, and Reuters. Uh, they all have finance reporting services where you can go and get sort of most of the higher level information. Again, there's a bit of a learning curve. You need to familiarize yourself with different tabs in each of these and where the data is and different uh, websites tend to define certain things in different ways like net net operating cash flow on one website will be a different number to net operating cash flow on another website and i think over the time over time we've just decided well pick one data source and stick with it and it all should come out in the wash at the end of the day. You want to say anything more about those sorts of freely available sites? Uh, no, you've summarised it well. I think uh, where they where I think they started to give us a hurdle was uh, in terms of trying to get a financial health score for companies. So we could certainly get all their the numbers from their, um, their reporting pages, uh, things like earnings per share and uh, net equity and those kinds of things. But Occasionally, we have problems with the, even with earnings per share because sometimes it was pre-abnormals or after-abnormals, uh, so there can be some differences. Uh, but the big, the big problem I think that most of our listeners have was how do I replicate financial health that we find in some of the paid subscription services? How do I do that from the free ones? And we have talked about that uh, in detail in a couple of our prior episodes. I think episode four in season one, I think, went through it. Uh, and we redid that one again too in one of the more recent seasons. Uh, and it, uh, I think we even found that one of the services we're using has changed the way it reports, so it's even getting difficult to use that. But you can put together a checklist yourself that looks at things like how much debt a company has and compares it to equity and uh, how quickly it can liquidate uh, things and pay off its debts, that kind of thing. So. Go back and listen to those in detail if you if you want to do it by hand. But I think you and I, me definitely historically, and I think you have too now, come to the conclusion we're better off paying an annual subscription to a service and getting it all in an easily to slice and dice uh, service that, that uh, lays it all out for us. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, fairly time intensive. And if you're trying to do, particularly if you're trying to analyse a lot of companies relatively quickly, 
using a lot of these freely available services is just going to chew up a ton of your time. Now, if, if you're full, if you're a full-time investor, great. If you've got eight hours a day to do that, then that's fine and dandy. But there's probably better things to do with your life. Uh, it depends on what you think your time is worth. So there are these paid play services, and a couple of the ones that I've toyed around with in the last year is a service called QuickFS. It's out of the US and they have uh, an Excel plugin where they will uh, sort of automatically fill out the spreadsheet for you. They'll pull the latest data down. And I thought that was a great idea for a while, but I found at the end of the day, there was way more coding and way more problems with it than seemed to be worth the time and effort. Uh, it was it was cheaper than some of the other services, but maybe a quarter to a third of the price. But for the amount of dicking around I had to do to get it to correlate with your numbers, it just wasn't worth it. At the end of the day, there's another there's an Australian site called Share Analysis that we do use. Uh, it is currently free, again, talking March 2020 here. They've had a lot of technical uh, technology challenges in the last year. They've been up and down like a bride's nighty, uh, so they're a little bit unreliable. They, they've replatformed. I think they got acquired by another organization, and they seem to have had a lot of technology issues. For the time being, they've sort of got a, a free trial that just keeps going, you have to re-sign up to the free trial, I think, every 30 days. But the, the, until they bed down the technology, it remains free. But of course, the site that we both use uh, for the majority of our data now is Stock Doctor. Now, Stock Doctor Lincoln is the, the parent company. It's been around for a long time. Do you want to just give people sort of the high-level pricey on Stock Doctor? Yeah, sure. So uh, Lincoln Indicators is the parent company. Because uh, it was founded by a guy called uh, Dr. Merv Lincoln, who uh, did his PhD on looking at what kind of ratios between cash, cash flow statements, profit and loss statements, and balance sheets he could find that were common to companies that went bankrupt. So he did some regression testing over the Australian share market. Oh, I think he did it probably in the 70s or 80s, so up until that period. And he came out with his whole list of ratios of things that were common to companies that went bankrupt. And then he flipped it around and said, well, let's score every company based on these ratios. And if they score well against these, then they're healthy. And the higher the score on these ratios, the healthier it is. So that's how Stock Doctor was formed. His son took over the business and turned it into a software program. Originally, they used to send us disks and you put the disks into a computer and load it up locally, but now it's all available on the cloud which is a lot easier as well. But it's a, I think it's a great tool because you can not only use uh, get the benefit of their financial health scores, but you get very easy access to data, which uh, is really useful in plugging you know, those numbers into our checklist. So people can check that out. Um, I think they do have a free trial. Go to stockdoctor.com.au if you want to have a look at that. And uh, then I think there's a couple of weeks free trial and then you're on a membership. It's about $1,600 a year or $142 a month. If you do sign up, mention Cameron's name. So uh, A, he gets a discount on the future subscriptions, but B, we're trying to 
I guess, get some leverage with Stock Doctor so we can, if we see, if they see enough people signing up from our podcast, then they will try and negotiate a deal for our members going forward. Yeah, a deal. And one of the things that we'd love them to do is build a QAV filter into the product to make it easier for our listeners to, uh, you know, go through our process. Mm. You don't have to build at the moment. Every all of us have to build our own filter, and we'll sort of explain how to do that. But uh, it's um, would be a lot easier if they would just make that a, a feature of their product, a QAV filter. Mm. So that's the that's the service we'll be using as we run through a little bit of share analysis, but mostly stock doctors. We run through this and we'll explain how to use it, where to find the data. Um, but if you're if you're brand new and you're getting around your head around this, it's going to be easier for you if you go up to Stock Doctor and take out a free trial. I think while you work your way through it. All right. Well, Tony, uh, I think we should get into walking through the checklist. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, for those of you that are brand new, go up to the QAV website, qavpodcast.com.au. And if you're a QAV Club subscriber, uh, go to the Portfolio and Checklist tab on the menu and uh, you'll be able to download the latest version of the checklist, which is an Excel spreadsheet grab the it's called the stock doctor version up there download that if you want and you can walk through it otherwise if you're not a qav club subscriber uh yet just uh, build your own i guess you can do that just walk through and make your own spreadsheet uh we'll, we'll walk you through all the data points and it's not a bad exercise actually to build your own that's how i did it uh, when we started off because i wanted to understand it and I find if if I build things myself, I tend to understand them better. Well, the first, there's the, once you open up the spreadsheet, you'll see that um, yeah, the first half a dozen columns or so of basic stuff, the the stock code. I like to put the name of the company in there so I know what an AQG or an SSG is. I just throw in links to the ASX and Google News and a Stock Doctor link in there just for easy access if I'm going back to it at a later date and I quickly want to check some data. Then column F is just the last analysis date, last time I did the analysis, so I know when I did it. Um, and then the column G is the period end date. That's when they close off their financial year um, or the, the reporting period that we're looking at anyway. So there'll be full years, half years, and some companies, because of where their headquarters are on weird financial year periods, not your usual June and Decembers. And it's good to know that because it helps me understand where the data is at. Yeah, but, if I can just butt in there too, sorry, Cameron, the, just on mm. the, 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 the six monthly versus 12 monthly. So uh, companies in Australia report twice a year, once uh, in well. They have to report by the end of August or the end of February, depending on the period. Uh, Stock Doctor will say whether the reports that you're looking at are annual, so they rep represent the 12-month period for the company, or interim, which is six-monthly. But in Stock Doctor, they, they add the current six months to the prior six months, so you get a rolling 12 months, which is, which is useful. So we don't have to do that calculation ourselves. Mm, very good. So then we get to column 
H, where the data starts. And in my spreadsheet now, Tony, column H is does the share price have a positive trend? The sentiment chart. Uh, this used to be a little bit later on in the checklist, but I've just moved it to the front of the checklist because we decided a little while ago that if the answer for this question is a negative, then we stop. This is a go, no go breakpoint for us in the checklist. So let's let's talk about sentiment, Tony. Yeah, so uh, where do I start? So it's basically the wisdom of the crowd. So we're trying to see whether or not people are buying or selling this stock and whether they have some confidence in it just from looking at the share price graph. Uh, that might sound a little bit counterintuitive to, to value investors because A, they don't necessarily like looking at graphs uh, and B, uh, they tend to be fundamental analysts. So they're looking at the numbers and then the share price will take care of itself. I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who think that way, but I use the, the sentiment on the share price graph as a bit of an insurance policy. Uh, I don't want to hold a stock where the share price is dropping too quickly and I only want to buy stocks where they're going up and their share price is going up. So that's that's roughly uh, the, the theory behind it. And I remember listening to a podcast years and years and years ago by a gentleman who said that, that all he did to invest was he looked at a, sh a share price graph and if it was going from the bottom left of the page to the top right of the page he bought and if it was going from the top left to the bottom right he sold. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, I think. Uh, if you are a value investor and you think you have a compelling score on a company and you think it's well below its intrinsic value, and even though the share price is going down, you can still buy it, uh, but I don't do that because typically what you have to do is to wait for it to bottom out and then start to come back up. And I'd rather uh, buy it on the way back up and then use my money for something else in between, which is more profitable. So having given that sort of overview of where I'm coming at it from, uh, I guess, a, 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 a macro level, how do you how do you measure sentiment? How do you know uh, what what's happening with trends? Because sometimes we're looking at graphs and the share price is all over the page. It's going up and down. And uh, I I didn't uh, uh, I didn't come up with this solution, but I did uh, download a package oh, ten or fifteen years ago that talked about a three point trend uh, line as a way of an, analyzing stocks. And there are plenty of uh, moving averages and investors who use moving averages out there who uh, use them to, to create buy or sell signals. And, and this is just one of those ways of doing it. Um, Stock Doctor has their own one, which they call SD Max, which is Stock Doctor. I'm not sure what the Max stands for. Basically, it's looking at the long-term movements in the share price over the, uh, sorry, the short-term movements in the share price over the long-term movements. So, for example, if in, in the last uh, stock doctor uses two years, in the last two years that the share price has been going up, but in the most recent period it's going down, they'll, they'll uh, use it as a trigger to say that uh, there's been a, a technical breach and you might want to think about selling. So how do I do it? Uh, I use, first of all, I use a five-year monthly graph, and I think that's pretty important. Uh, I think three-point trend line analysis and other uh, trend line analysis can work over different time periods but if you use one which is too short uh, it can be very volatile so you're buying and selling a lot which can be um, expensive in terms of paying capital gains tax but also expensive in terms of paying brokerage as you get in and out of uh, a share 
So I take a longer term view, so five years, and I use the monthly uh, graph. So I'm not looking at weekly moves or daily moves or whatever. And then what I do is, is uh, if I'm looking at whether something should be sold, I'm going to find the lowest point on the graph in that five year period. And I'm going to take the next lowest point to the right, that lowest point. And I'm going to use a, a ruler or a straight edge to join those two points up. And then I'm looking for the time that the, the share price drops below that line. And so basically what I'm saying is that there, if you think about shares and, and even in the index, it generally, they generally trade in peaks and troughs, so in a range. So even though they're going up or down, they're generally testing a high point and a low point within a band. And we're looking for times when they move out of that, that range uh, on the way up or the way down to, to really say that uh, people have had enough and they're selling out uh, or, or they're buying in because um, uh, there's new, new people buying into the share price and it's, it's trading outside of its downtrend. So uh, on the way, for shares that are going up, we're looking for a break that goes down. And for shares that are going down, we're looking for a break that goes up. So we reverse the procedure for shares that are going down in terms of looking for a time to buy in. We're taking the highest point on the way down, then the next highest point to the right of that. We're drawing a line. And when the share price goes above that line, it's, it's a buy signal because there's more buying than selling in the share price. Is that, is that clear, Cam? Do you have any questions or, or yeah, uh, let's comments? Yeah, let's just uh, take the those line drawings a little bit more slowly. And, and if people are confused about this, and, and a lot of people always are, mm. it's hard to grasp without having a visual guide. Go up to our website again and go to the videos page and you'll see a number of videos that I've put up there over the last few months that will give you a, a visual step-by-step -step demonstration on how this works, which makes it a lot easier, I think. So that's qavpodcast.com.au slash videos. But just again, in terms of the when should it be sold, so we're looking at drawing a line between the two lowest points on the five-year monthly chart and of the share price, and then you draw that line all the way to the right to the current date, Mm -hmm. And if the price drops below that line, we sell. Mm -hmm. When to buy, uh, we're taking the highest point and then drawing a line to the right of the graph uh, to the next highest point, through the next highest point. Yes. And we're waiting for the share price to get above that line mm -hmm. before we buy back in. Yeah, and, and I just want to add that... Um you, because we're recording this in March 2020, most of the share price graphs are going to have a very obvious sell signal. Uh, some don't, but the majority do. And you can see the share price has just dropped off a cliff uh, and certainly have breached through the three-point sell lines. And you can also see that it's too soon to buy because the share graphs are still going down. And uh, they will tick up at some point. And we've had market rallies that uh, have gone on and petered out in the last couple of weeks. They haven't really been buy signals for us. What we're really trying to wait for is we really want to see sentiment turning, not just people dipping their toe in the market or trying to guess the bottom. We really want to see sentiment turn, and that's when we need to see a break in the downtrend uh, as the share price gains momentum on the way up. And I guess it, the, the point I want to make to people here is you don't believe in forecasting, you don't believe in trying to time the market. 
what you do is look at individual stocks. You look at, in, in this particular column, we're looking at the market sentiment for that particular stock. It's only the first step in 17 data points that we're going to go through. But we are not trying to time the market. We're just looking to see if this if this share price has support or, or not. Well, we are kind of timing the market, but not in the classical sense. We're we're using the three-point sell line as a bit of insurance, almost like a stop loss for us to say, the market's collapsing, let's get out. And we're using the three-point up line to say, look, the market's uh, on its way back up, now it's time to buy. Um, that's, that's it in a very broad sense. So we are, in a way, timing the market for sure. Um, but we're not, we're not we're not trying to guess what's no. going to happen with the no. market. I guess is what I'm the, saying. When we're letting the market yeah. tell us, really. Yes, you yeah. you wait for the data to tell you when to sell and when to buy. You're not trying to predict. Maybe the, the predictive. It's not predictive timing. It's uh, data based timing. Yeah. Yeah, and like as I think I've said before on the podcast, if if anyone was any good at prediction, economists would be billionaires, and they're not. <laughs> They're good at telling us what happened, not what will happen. And uh, and likewise, almost any any sort of forecaster will be wrong as much as they are right. It's it's just a fool's game. It's, so we cl- it's, flip, data, it's flipping a coin. <laughs> it is, yeah. Really? I mean, they, especially in times like this, how on earth could you ever forecast when the lockdown will finish, whether there's going to be reinfections in China, uh, whether stimulus packages are going to be enough, et cetera, et cetera. You just can't forecast it. People the lockdown's going to finish anywhere between two weeks and six months, depending on who you listen. <laughs> yeah, Scott right. Morrison versus Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Now, I just wanted to also mention that there's a like a number of aphorisms around this that you've mentioned to me over the last year. We mentioned one on an episode today as well. Another episode we did uh, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's longtime partner, talking about. I think he said it's time in the market, not timing the market. That's important. But these guys, mm-hmm. like the, the 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 Warren Buffetts, the Charlie Mungers, who have been doing this for sixty years, uh, extremely successfully, they're in the same camp as you, right? They don't believe in trying to guess what the market's going to do. No, that's correct. They don't. They they know it's a Mister Market is manic depressive. Uh, look, I, I appreciate Charlie's uh, advice to stay in the market, and I also think that if any of our listeners are uncomfortable with the three point trend line. They can stay invested and ride things out. Uh, I, I just found, especially after the GFC, that I would have done better if I had a stop loss on the way down and waited for things on the way up. Uh, so that's why I use the, the three-point trend line now. So it is going a little bit against what Charlie says in terms of uh, I am trying to, to time the market on the way down and back on the way up. But if anyone feels uncomfortable with that, then sure, go, go uh, fully into the market all the time. Uh, I'd advise if you're getting into the market now, though, that you dollar cost average, that you don't just buy everything on one day and think you pick the bottom, because that, that's really the essence of what Charlie's trying to say is you can't pick the top or the bottom. Yeah. And we did a video last week where we were using the GFC and I think CBA as an example, global financial crisis from 2008. And we looked at a chart of what happened with CBA and you explained uh, you know, if if that was playing out today, where you would have sold and where you would have bought back in using three point trend lines as your signal, and how you would have you by using that avoided the majority of the downturn, 
and uh, picked up on the majority of the upturn. So if people are, again, trying to see why you do this, go and have a look at that video, the the the, the when to buy back in video, I think it's called on uh, our videos page. Hmm. So with this, when we're doing column H, if the stock is exhibiting positive sentiment, we give it a two. And if it's negative sentiment, it gets a minus one. And in fact, as I said before, if it's negative sentiment, we just stop right there. Don't, 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 do not pass go. Do not collect 200. Unless you are, you know, learning the QAV process, you want to do the checklist just for experience. That's great, but just don't forget at the end of it, regardless of what happens with the score, it's it, it failed on the sentiment. So we would not buy it, regardless of what happens to the rest of the numbers when it's uh, in a negative sentiment. Correct, yes. Okay. So that's a go, no go decision. Now, the next column is asked a similar question. Is there a recent positive upturn explain your thinking behind that tony yeah so it might be easier for people to have a look at this in reverse so is there most of the share price graphs on the on the market at the moment are, or stocks on the market at the moment are displaying a, a recent negative downturn so in other words has the trend line been broken in the last six months uh, what we're looking for in terms of the checklist is for a break on the upside and if that's happened it's really a signal to start buying in. So we give it an, a, an extra point in the checklist because I expect that that's the start of a run. And, uh, and and I guess more often than not, that's a great time to buy and we get most of our returns at that kind of time. Mm-hmm. So if there is a positive upturn, it gets an extra one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it doesn't, we just blank it. We don't... Uh, so, so we see with some of our scores, there will just be a blank... That means we're not, it doesn't get counted in the overall. Yeah. So it's a stock isn't being penalized if it doesn't get a positive here. It just doesn't get a, doesn't get a positive. Doesn't get a boost. Yeah. Yeah. A kicker. Yeah. So some things we're looking for things which boost the score rather than, uh, than take away from the score. Because uh, if, a, if a share is in an upswing anyway, there's, there's no point penalizing it because it's, uh, it's probably in the right place to buy. It's just that we think it's a better place to buy if it's just recently happened. All right, so column J is net operating cash flow. This is where we start to actually look at financial data. And the rationale here, as I understand it, is because from your perspective, cash is king. We're looking for businesses that are performing well, and you believe the best indicator, or at least one of the best indicators for that, is how much cash the business is generating. That's right. I mean, cash is king, you're right. And uh, Warren Buffett uh, has spoken a lot about using what he calls free cash flow. And you can get that in Stock Doctor as well. And there's a there's a there's quite a strong correlation between free cash flow and operating cash flow. But, but just to, to, I guess, give it a quick summary, uh, we're looking at the, the money coming in through the front door, less the costs of collecting that money. Uh, Buffett takes it a bit further and he starts to look at whether the company is putting enough uh, aside for providing for investment in the future for uh, capex replacements and maintenance and things like that and you're paying down of debt and uh, uh, investments that it's likely to need to make uh, in the future and that's so if you go through those other lines in the cash flow report you get the free cash flow uh, i found over the years even though there's a, a correlation between the two 
that I preferred operating cash flow because it's the highest line in any of the accounts that a company reports. And a, and a company is required under the law to report an operating cash flow statement, a profit and loss statement, and a balance sheet. And uh, what I found over time is that the further you go down those reports, the more it comes, not guesswork, but, but the, the more it becomes a... Uh, a management decision as, a, as, to, as to what figures get put in there. So, for example, what do I mean? Uh, as we said before, Buffett's trying to work out uh, in getting to free cash flow whether enough money has been set aside for depreciation on the current assets or amortization of, of things like goodwill. Uh, and, and that's a bit of an educated guess sometimes because uh, unless you're very close to the company or very close to the industry, you don't know whether they need to replace the bulldozers at the mine next year or whether they can wait till the year after. Uh, and, and some of these things are subjective. So if you kind of follow that line of logic, then sometimes other things are subjective and there's been you know, very, very uh, big cases of companies which have exploded uh, in a bad way because of the accounts being almost doctored by the management to make them, to make them look good. You know, things like Enron, um, even... Uh, uh, what was his name? Al Dunlap, Al Dunlap, who worked in Australia for Kerry Packer for a while, uh, was was uh, uh, found to have uh, front-ended sales um, and reduced his inventory. So there's there are lots of levers that a manager can pull between those three, three accounting statements to make themselves look good or to suit their purposes. Whether they have to like they may decide that they're going to reach their bonus early, uh, easy this year. So why don't we put some provisions on the balance sheet so we'll reduce the profit a little bit so that it makes it easier for us next year to withdraw those provisions and spend them against some costs and our P&L will look better next year. So all these kinds of things are available to managers. And I'm not saying managers are crooked. In some cases they are, but, but it's human nature to try and present yourself in the best light or to maximise your uh, income, which for a manager is often uh, tied to the performance of the company. So what I found was operating cash being at the top of the statements was the hardest thing to manipulate. And so that's why I use operating cash as, as the driver for my valuation. I guess as we go through this, Tony, we should tell people where to find this data using Stock Doctor with the graphs before. Uh, if you go to Stock Doctor, you see there's the little menu tab up the top. I tend to use the one that's got a little picture of a uh, uh, like a whiteboard on it with a graph on it, advanced charting. And I go through and do my five-year monthly, use the chart style of a line. But for this one, the uh, net operating cash flow, we go to the second tab in Stock Doctor Financial Statements. Go across the, the top line and click the Statement of Cash Flows tab. And then it's just the top line on the, the first yes, uh, row here, yep. operating and, cash flows. And just be careful of the units. The units are above the column. In uh, most cases, it's millions, but sometimes it's uh, thousands and sometimes it's just dollars. So just be careful of that too. Okay, so there's nothing else that we need to be... We just grab that number uh, out of that column and uh, stick it the latest column and stick it in. Yeah. Just you said something just before I wanted to just um, ask you about for share price sentiment. I just go to the front page of Stock Doctor and I don't go into advanced charting. Oh, okay. You, you yeah. just eyeball it from there. 
I, I can keep yeah I keep that page set to five year monthly, and I can yeah eyeball it from there. Moving right along then on our checklist, the next column would be column I, which is shares on issue. How many shares they have out there available to be bought? I always struggle to find that on Stock Doctor. Tell me where I find that one again. I think it's on this front page too, isn't it? No. So go back into financial statements. Uh Uh-huh. And it's on the first tab that opens when you get into financial statements down the bottom where it says liquidity. Fully paid ordinary shares. Correct. Yeah. And again, be careful of the units. In BHP's case, it's millions, but again, sometimes it's not. It's hundreds of thousands or units. Right. So that's a fairly easy one to fill out in the spreadsheet. You just grab the Mm -hmm. number and you throw it in. And obviously some of the people will see that some of the data points that we're looking at on the spreadsheet is just grabbing raw data from financial statements or from Stock Doctor. And some of them require a a score, an assessment uh, and a score for how it's doing. So this is uh, just a data point, how many shares they have, and that is going to become important because the next column, column L, is how much cash per share the business is generating. And I have it in my spreadsheet, just dividing the the uh, net operating cash flow by the number of shares on issue it gives me how much cash per share they're generating. I guess that's that's a good one to talk about the coffee shop analogy, Tony. Yeah, so uh, if we well, yeah, if we say that uh, rather than saying cash per share, but just how much cash is the coffee shop generating? So we know uh, in terms of operating cash flow, if we we're using the strict accounting definition, it's how much money is coming in from selling coffee and food, less the cost of collecting that money. So less the probably the wages of the staff who are doing that collecting. Um, fairly simple calculation. And then, uh, but in, if we were, say, a partner in the coffee shop and there was, uh, say, I don't know, 10 partners in the coffee shop, we'd have to divide that uh, operating cash flow up according to the number of shares. And that's where we get to our share of the, uh, of the cash flow coming in. And let's talk about why we want to know that. My uh, understanding is if I'm going to pay, if we've got a coffee shop and I'm going to pay $100,000 for the coffee shop, we're starting to work out how long is it going to take before the business is going to bring in enough money to neutralize the outgoings that I had to fork up with to buy the business in the first place. Yes, that's right. So we're, we're um, whilst, whilst you know, acknowledging it's a rough and ready calculation because we're not taking into account any of the other profit and loss items, like depreciation and how often we have to turn over the cappuccino machine and things like that. But a rough and ready calculation of how long will it take for me to get my money back. Hmm. And this is this is trying to minimise our risk here. We're trying... Buffett talks about a, a safety margin and a buffer. What we're trying to do here is determine what level of risk. If it's going to take me two years for the business to nominally return my initial investment, that's very different to a business that might take 10 years or 20 years, or when you look at some technology stocks, 50 years to yes, return right. my investment. Yeah. yeah. And if you, if you were tempted to pay 50 years for a coffee shop, you'd want to have a fair idea it was going to grow. 
you know, maybe it was a franchise of five coffee shops and you were going to franchise it out to be a hundred or something like that. But if we're just buying the regular run-of-the-mill down-the-road coffee shop, then yeah, we want to have a low, we want to have a quick return on our money, basically. I mean, for 50 years, that coffee shop would want to have a little room out the back where I got <laughs> uh, additional benefits over and above the coffee. Coffee with a happy ending is what that coffee shop would have to be. Happy ending beans, that's what I'd yeah, call the, it. The butter bean. <laughs> the butter bean? Did you say? Butter bean. The no, butter... I said butter bean, but oh, butter bean's a great name. Quick, let's go trademark the butter bean strip joint. With coffee, it's basically <laughs> pole dancers and yeah. coffee and mobsters um, out the back. It's a Sopranos yeah. reference for people who've never watched the we'll Sopranos. We'll let our wives go into the front coffee shop and not the back. <laughs> I thought our wives would be on the poles. <laughs> Keep costs down. Just get the wives out there on the poles. <laughs> well, if you're paying 50 times for earnings, maybe you need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so that's our cash per share. Column K is the share price. Pretty obvious. You get that from, well, Stock Doctor will tell you what the current share price is. You can also get mm-hmm. it from the ASX's website or Yahoo Finance or any of those other websites. And then column L is another calculation. Right? I call it cell type formula, uh, the same as the cash per share cell type. This one, of course, is we're taking the share price and dividing it by the cash per share figure that we had before and this is to work out exactly what we were talking about how long is it going to take to generate enough cash to neutralize my investment correct yes and we're looking for a number which is equal to six or less than six so we want our investment paid back within six years or no more than six years and that's column m column m is is the price (laughs) per share divided by the cash per share less than seven six or less and that we give it a score two if it's a positive zero if it's a negative so let's explain that tony what what's this magic number seven uh i know that one is the loneliest number that you'll ever know (laughs) two's not as bad as one but it's the loneliest number since the number one by the time i get up to seven i think it's it's, that's polygamy by the time you get up to seven you're a mormon (laughs) Um, Norman, where, yeah. where did you come up with where, what's what, why is seven important yeah so uh, I once read a book uh, about investing and it was covering a, a guy who ran a company called Cap Cities which was a, a, a TV station in New York upstate New York capital cities I think it was called but it's always referred to as Cap Cities and he went around buying up other TV stations uh, but would never pay more than uh, six times operating cash flow for them. And eventually it, it grew into one of the big networks. I think it was ABC in the, U, in the US. And that was his metric. So I'm, again, unashamedly stealing from someone else. But what we're trying to do is uh, people often talk about, for example, the, the PE ratio, the price to earnings. So that's doing the same calculation we have, but they use the earnings per share rather than the operating cash flow per share. And then they'll, they'll come out with a higher number in terms of their target. So oftentimes they'll use a number which is less than the market average, which is around 14, uh, which is the PE of the market long term. Uh, and so they're looking for companies which are less than that. We're higher up in the, in the profit and loss and operating cash flow statement than earnings per share. We're at operating cash flow. So our ratio has to be you know, less than 
than 14, and uh, so I arrived at 6. I also found, too, uh, that uh, basically, if we, the, without putting a, a number on it at all, if we just sort of did our analysis of all the companies and then racked and stacked them, starting at the lowest price to operating cash flow, we had more than enough to get on with by the time we get to six. So I kind of approached it from a number of different ways. And the guy, I think, was Tom Murphy. Yes, that's that sounds like familiar. It. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it's Warren, like Warren Buffett is the big fan of his, right? I think the book Correct. might have been The Outsiders. Was that the book? It was, that you... yes. It was, yes. Thank you. So that's why, really that's, good book. That's why I'm here, Tony. I'm your uh, your other memory. Fact, uh, <laughs> actually, I just quietly Googled <laughs> um, <laughs> Cap City's guy, Warren Buffett. <laughs> Warren Buffett once said, most of what I learned about management, I learned from Murph, Tom Murphy. I just kicked myself because I should have applied it much earlier, he said. Right. So uh, if people want to go read that book, uh, I haven't read that one yet, but I, I should make a point getting my hands on it. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, really good. So it's just guidance. Again, Is if I understand it, it's just uh, risk management. Yes, that's right. So what, as you said before, if we were paying six times operating cash flow for the coffee shop, we expect to uh, get our money back after six years. And obviously you want that to be as low as possible. So... When we come to to ranking companies, the lower that price to operate in cash flow, the better. Because it's pretty hard to predict. I mean, you you buy a coffee shop in a suburb. Are people still going to be drinking coffee seven years from now? Probably. But what's going to happen to trends in coffee shops? Are baristas going to have like long square beards, short beards, (laughs) Hitler mustaches? Is it going to be jazz? Is it going to be fun? Like, we don't know. What happens in the suburb, we don't know. Things can change a lot. The longer the time frame, the more more things can change. More importantly, another coffee shop could open up across the road and and take half our business. With with stripper poles at the front, (laughs) the the butter bean. bean. Yeah, so you want our money back as soon as possible before all those risks can, can uh, destroy our business. I'm just Googling that. The butter bean. Yeah, somebody's <laughs> already got it. The butterbean.com. See, we're, we're too late, Tony. Like too late. Story of my life. Buck short, actually, day late. Actually, I'm normally too early. 10, 10 15 years yeah. too early. <laughs> or... I spent seven years writing a book, four years making a film, released them both, just as the global pandemic hits the world and everything goes into meltdown. Mm. Like, I tell you. Next if time you, want... you write a book, let me know when you're going to release it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't believe in forecasting, except if Cameron's doing yeah. something, stay it's right gonna... away from it. Yeah, it's going to be mistimed completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Column P, dividend yield. Again, straight up financial data on Stock Doctor. I get this from on that homepage. Nine Golden Rules is the homepage on Stock Doctor. And then down in the past financial performance uh, module, whatever you want to call it, that they have there. Yeah, so there's in fact, there's two yields that they give you, what they call the dividend yield percentage and then the gross dividend yield percentage. So the gross is simply taking into account that when you get paid a dividend in Australia, you get a franking credit as well. So it's basically adding 30% to the dividend. But we're just looking at the basic dividend, the dividend yield number. Right. Why don't we want to use the gross one? Uh, well, we can, but I, th- I think we just have to change the metrics that we use. That's all. Why? The, the cutoffs. Hmm? 
Why? Well, uh, we're, we're going to say that the dividend yield has to be greater than the mortgage rate so that we can, or, the, or banks charge for mortgages so that we can buy stocks. It's an advantage to be able to buy stocks and have the, the dividends pay off the interest if you want to gear against stocks. So that's the basic test. If we then took the gross number, uh, you might want to just, uh, well, actually, probably could keep it at the still above the, the bank yield. Uh, no. The problem would be is that uh, you'd have to wait longer to get your tax return back to get your claim your franking credits to service the debt. So, for example, if we had a company which was yielding 3% and the gross up amount on that was 4% and the mortgage rate that we're using as our benchmark is 4%, we might say it's worth buying, but it would take us probably you know 18 months to service the debt, which right. would probably give us cash flow problems. Yeah, okay. Now... Uh, you, you've talked about the reason why we have this there. I mean, I, I assume this leads into sort of um, the the potential upside for the stock. If it pays out a dividend mm. that's higher than the mortgage rate, there's going to be a lot of retirees that might mm-hmm. like this stock. Also, it's good for people that are leveraging their portfolio, like I, I know that you have done in the past. But I just want to be clear about this because we've had some people who have listened to the show who get confused about this. They make the assumption that you care about dividend income. And at least up until this point in time, it's not that you care about dividends. You don't, you're not buying stocks for the dividend. You just see this as a potent, uh, one particular indicator of uh, potential growth for the stock. And health. I think that's the other important point is that companies... The boards of companies will have to be very, very certain that they can maintain a dividend once they start paying it because companies, are their share prices are marked down very heavily if they have to withdraw a dividend or, or lessen it. So, you know, basically it's a sign of stability in the uh, earnings of a company. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, moving right along, column Q is the question is the dividend yield higher than the mortgage rate uh this is how we we, where we score them for their dividend yield they get a one for a positive and a zero for a negative now where do we determine what the mortgage rate is we just go to a bank site like the nab yes that's what we've been doing Uh, yep um there's probably websites out there like canstar which gives us the whole range of mortgages i they will often have very cheap mortgages in there. I tend not to use that because I don't think people can necessarily always borrow at those rates depending on their circumstances. So, yeah, I tend to go to the bank that I use, which is ANZ, and, and check its benchmark, you know, um, what they call it, uh, interest plus uh, capital repayment mortgage for 25 years. Right. And use that, yeah. Principal okay. plus interest, sorry. Column R is the price-to-earnings ratio, the P-E. First thing everyone learns when they start dabbling in the share market is the P-E. Now, this is straight-up financial data. We can get this off of uh, Stock Doctor. Let me see. Is it on? Yes, it's on the the homepage, uh, Section 5 on the homepage. Is it really? Okay, let me have a look. I normally go to the financial statements. Oh, yeah, it is there. You're right. Okay. 
Yes, so uh, gives us the PE, gives us a number of figures there, but we just they've got the industrial average PE, the market average PE. We just want the straight PE here, the latest number. Now uh, let's talk about the PE, Tony. From memory, you've said in the past that it's a little bit like price to cash, kind of an indication for how long it will take for the business to provide enough earnings to neutralize our purchase price, but. The concept of earnings is a little bit fluffier than net operating cash and can be manipulated in the financials. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly why I use operating cash and and operating cash to share uh, operating cash to share price as the ratio rather than the price to earnings ratio. I'm trying to pull up. I know I've I've got a quote from Charlie Munger somewhere about this. Uh, he says, I think that every time you see the word EBITDA, you should substitute the word bullshit earnings. <laughs> and EBITDA stands for earnings before income and ta- interest. Sorry, earnings before interest and tax and depreciation and amortization. Yeah. Yeah. And here's, I mean, to give that context, a lot of the internet companies will use that as their their earnings line because they're not making any money at the actual earnings per share line. So they say, oh, we're not making any money at the normal EPS line, so our PE ratio looks bad, but don't use that line because we're growing. Use the earnings before interest, tax, and depreciation and amortization. Yeah. So if it's bullshit earnings, why do we have it in the checklist? EBITDA, we don't. <laughs> well, we have the PE, which oh, uh, right, uses. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, earnings are there when they. Yeah, yeah. What, what's the earnings used in PE? Is it the EBITDA? No, it's lower down. It's earnings per share. Oh, okay, right. So uh, EBITDA is before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization, and EPS is after all those things. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, we don't use the PE in terms of a direct uh, indicator of whether a stock's the right price or not. We use the uh, PE trend, which I think you'll talk about in a minute, won't you? Well, we do give it a score uh, if the PE is less than the yield. And, uh, you know, the, you, you've told me in the past that it's just an observation that you've made with your regression testing. It's an indicator of uh, value. Yeah, exactly. So, again, if you think of of a company paying out a, a dividend, it's 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 going to have the the view that they can keep doing that going forward. And if the PE is less than the yield, then that's got to be cheap. So we're seeing a company which has all likelihood of continuing to pay a dividend, which means in all likelihood it'll be in business. Uh, but you can buy it on a PE of less than the yield, and the yield's probably going to be around four or five percent. So the PE is very very low. Okay, and so this is column S for the checklist. Is the PE less than the dividend yield? We give it a one for a positive and a zero for a negative. Uh, no, we give it one for a positive and a blank if it's uh, if it's not. <clears throat> Again, it's one of these boosts that we do. Not on my not on my checklist. We don't, Tony. We give it a. <laughs> we we give it a. We give it a one or uh, okay. I've one got or a blanks. Blank. I got a lot of blanks there. You're right. It's a blank. Okay. Typo. Well, that's where we're going to leave episode 303, folks. Uh, We actually kept going. I think we recorded for another hour to finish the checklist um, explanation. But you don't want to see. I know. I know we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus lockdown of 2020. But uh, you don't want to sit here and listen to this for two hours. 
So we'll put out the uh, next hour of that next week. I think we'll do episode 304 in between, which will be another Q&A episode. And uh, then we'll be back to finish off the checklist analysis next time. Of course, if you're listening to this in the future, first of all, how did we go? Did we survive the coronavirus? Let me know. Send me an email. And secondly, well, obviously you did if you're listening to this. And secondly, you can just, you know, skip around. Listen to 301, 303, 305, and you'll get the whole getting started introduction uh, episodes. Or you can go and listen to the episodes in the middle as well. You, go, I, I, you know, I'm not the boss of you. I can't tell you what to do. Do whatever the hell you like. Don't look at me like that. Do what you want. But if you are new to this, just remember, as we always say, we are not financial advisors. Don't take anything you hear on this show as financial advice. We're just teaching how Tony thinks about investing. May be right for him, may not be right for you. So please, before you make any investment decisions, go see a financial advisor. Stay safe. Be nice to each other. We'll see you next week.